I hear a seagull in there? <laughs> Dave Downing. Dave. See, I like the Downing. I like the song that you and Jesse had. Better. Well, maybe we'll end up back at that song. We don't know. I kind of like that song. Well, we might use it again. Mm-hmm. And. That's kind of the beauty of this. We're going to explore different things this season. We'll try different music and maybe some feedback from our listeners and we can pick a song or we just do this. We have a new song every time. I don't know. Yeah. I am obligated to tell you that this free stock song is by Junior85 and it's called Left for Deadish. And if you think you are in the wrong place. You're not. Well, technically you might be, but you are listening to the Graffito podcast. I'm here with Dave Downing. Hey, Drew. Hey, we are in the office, excited. This is our first episode. Yeah, this is our recording studio for the next couple months, right? Yeah, I mean, if we're gonna pay rent, we might as well use it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I don't know if Jesse, when he got this space, thought, "Hey, this would make a great recording studio." But here we are. Yeah, here we are. We're uh, we're it's a little eerie downtown right now. Yeah, we're our office is in the Leather District. And it's a ghost town. Somehow it's still hard to find parking, but there's nobody around. Yeah. And it's creepy. It is creepy. And when it's like, hey, what should we do for lunch? All of a sudden, it's, that's a serious challenge. Yeah, fewer options. Yeah. That being said, we're only here. I mean, you haven't been here since March? Um, I've come in once or twice, just popped in, but yeah, it's... I mean, to have like a work session. Oh, yeah, yeah. probably. Right. Yeah. Well... We're focusing this episode, Dave, on restaurants. Yep. If you listen to the half episode that Jesse and I did and published last week, you'll know that each episode will be focused on something different. This week, it's all about restaurants. And for the first guest that you're going to join me on, Tracy Chang from Pagu is coming in. Yeah. How do you know Tracy? So we, God, it must have been four or five years ago, we were introduced to Tracy and I believe this was around the time she was doing Gucci's Midnight Ramen, mm. and uh, which really kind of gained a quick cult following. Um, and so it was just being around the restaurant world and, and different restaurateurs and getting introduced to Tracy along the way. And, you know, we happened to um, collaborate on a deal together in Central Square. So I remember when Pagu was new, it was just such a big deal. And I can't believe that's five years ago already. Speaking of being new, also in this episode, Kate and Trevor Smith from Thistle and Leak will be here. Yeah. Uh, they just opened a place in Newton. It's beautiful. I just drove by it the other day. It's a it great, great spot. Great little corner. We ate there. The food was amazing. Um, the space is really sweet. I hope to one day be indoors eating there um, and enjoying myself. Dream, dream for us all, Drew. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of sadly probably going to be the theme of some of these interviews that we have today. Yeah. The other person coming in is Nolan DeCoster. Uh, Jesse's going to interview him with me. Nolan is from Toast. Yeah. And Toast is a software platform that a lot of restaurants are using. And they actually have a very innovative partnership going on with some of the businesses in the Kendall Square area that allows different restaurants to cater to the employees. And that will be the first episode. I'm pretty excited. Yeah, me too. I think it's uh, some, some good perspectives what from, you, what are you from drinking different parts over there? of the uh, what are you drinking over industry. There? Uh, kombucha. Okay. Mm. Yeah. You like that stuff? Uh, I like the ones with a lot of sugar in them, I think. Right. So yeah. it's like juice with a little... It's like juice. Yeah. I, I drink the ones that taste like juice, not like bacteria. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> mm. Love that bacteria. Yeah. yeah. All right, everybody. Enjoy the episode. Thanks for listening. Will you settle a bet for me? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Try. <laughs> when is it okay to start using gift cards again? <laughs> I bought all these gift cards and I have had many conversations. I've written about it on the blog that you tell me when do you, when is it okay to use these things or are these something we should just consider it sort of a donation charity and pack those things away for a while? Yeah. Um, you know, I've I've definitely had people come in and use it's a tough gift question, cards. Drew. It is actually when yeah, you think about it, question. because you the whole point of the gift card is to put influx of money right to the restaurant. Yeah. And yeah. If, if you're redeeming them, then you sort of take away from that meat, that that point. 
Yeah. But I mean, I think restaurants, you know, restaurants do want to provide some kind of a joy versus just like watching the, you know, gift card transaction come through. So, you know, I don't, I don't hold anything against gifts card redeemers that come to the restaurant. Um, I think it's a little awkward if they handle, you know, depending how they handle a situation, right? If you come in with the gift card, you spend the gift card and then you like don't leave a tip or something. Like well, that's, that's just bad practice yeah, no matter what. That's not good practice. <laughs> that's just terrible. Right. Yeah. Um, um, but right. you know, if it's you come good, in, that's not a good diner. Hey, if you come in and you love the experience, right? You spend your gift card and you're like, Hey, I'm going to pay it forward and I'm going to buy a gift card for someone else. Like that's, that's great. That's the best thing. Ooh, you I like, do. I like that idea. Yeah. yeah. I like pay that it, too. pay it forward. Yeah. Yeah. What's the single biggest thing a consumer or customer can do right now to support their restaurants? Is it, is it the takeout? And the delivery, is it sitting on their patio until it's too cold to do that? Um, donating to off their is, plate. <laughs> donating to off their plate. No, seriously. Yeah. Or buying gift cards. Like, what? what is it, do you think? Is there a, is, is it all of it? I mean, to be honest, like, all of those things are great in terms of bringing in revenue. If you're trying to bring in revenue for a restaurant and not put them to a lot of work immediately, then you buy the gift card, right? Because that's uh, to be used another day. And in Drew's case, in and, like and, light years and pay, from And pay it forward. <laughs> it's kindling. And you pay it forward and when you it use forward. it. Yep. Um, but you know what? Like I, to be honest, would say it would be my grocery business because I find that if you are coming to buy groceries with Pagu, and like, I would rather that someone come buy groceries with Pagu every week for the next year than buy takeout once or buy a gift card once, right? And my most loyal regulars who have be become even closer friends now have been doing that. And that is something that I'm really appreciative for. Just loyalty, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, they they are spending their money with us instead of with like Amazon and Whole Foods, which, you know, like Jeff Bezos does a great job in terms of running a business. Um, but you know, like it's not your small local, you know, shop. Um, and if you want your restaurants to stick around, then that repetition is what's going to help them stick around. So you started takeout like many others, but also a market where people can buy household items, fresh vegetables and meats. I'm sure the takeout made a difference. Did the market have an impact on your overall sales? Yeah, depending on the month, for sure. I mean, May was a good month for market sales. Um, but, you know, each time, I think each time we launch something, it takes a bit of time to get traction and then it does hit this peak. But at the same time, it also, you know, eventually kind of dwindles, especially as the, you know, economy or, you know, government legislation kind of loosens up a bit. Um, so, you know, the market was popular in May. We started it in April. Um, but looking now at September, uh, you know, it's, it's a pretty quiet market uh, compared to before. So, you know, having these kind of new ideas and... Um, you know, taking risks to do it or putting the time in to do it, to market it, to build it. You know, we offer over 170 items in our market. Um, I think it's important, but it's also uh, equally important to realize that we don't know everything about COVID and we don't know everything about uh, consumer behavior during COVID. And so I wouldn't say that any one thing that we do as a restaurant of, you know, three and a half years is bulletproof is, you know, is like the golden answer to these economic woes. But it seems like, Dave, you can probably confirm this just having seen what other restaurants are doing. Nowadays, these restaurants need to have many different sources of revenue. Sure. To make it happen. Yeah. So if something's down, something can pick up, but it's, you have to have multiple channels and ways to reach people. Well, a lot of it's experimentation. I mean, you're not really, I, I think the market came out of uh, the fact that it was hard for consumers to get some of these products. And if you're already going to, you know, order food from Pagu 
why wouldn't you get some of these, you know, items that are maybe hard to find at your grocer? So, um, and, and obviously the quality is going to be better through Tracy and her team. So it seems like there's a lot of these kind of ideas around to go cocktails and beer and wine and, uh, the market concept and um, selling mixers. Yes. Yeah, selling yeah. all sorts of different things to make it work. And again, it's still, um, still falls short from, you know, pre COVID. So, uh, I think everyone's trying to be very creative right now to survive. And that's what it, you know, you see from the better operators, they're, they're trying to do as many pivots as they can to make it work. You know, I hope people do, you know, other operators do look towards, um, you know, other revenue streams um, in talking with friends in the industry and friends outside the industry. Um, people are looking at doing CPGs, so consumer packaged goods, whether that's in beverage or food product. You know, there's this whole like chili crisp craze, but you know, people bottling their sauces and selling it. So I think it'll be great to see innovation in those regards. Um, but I do think that there's going to be a greater need for at least the next 18 months um, to help essential workers. And I just don't think that there is, um, you know, I, I don't think that's where people's minds go to when they think, oh, how should we pivot our business? That isn't their first thought. Um, so I hope that more people think of that first or second or third, um, but they don't forget that you know, one of the important things about this industry and staying alive um, in this industry and evolving in this industry is taking care of those essential workers who have been pivotal to this industry existing for as long as it has. Um, it's a lot of these immigrant communities that, you know, aren't really given a voice. Well, I'm looking at Tracy's accomplishments just during COVID and how busy she is. And there's definitely a lot of creativity involved. Tracy, you were extremely active getting food to essential workers in and around Boston during the outbreak with Project Restore Us. What was your involvement? How did that start? So similar to the grocery market idea, um, you know, I have to attribute my friend uh, Marina Lynn. She's the one that said, hey, I don't feel great about, you know, going to grocery markets. Um, you know, can you sell me some flour? And that turned into, oh, I think my friends will take some flour too. So I'll just take a 50 pound bag, uh, come on my bicycle. I was like, you know, I could give you a ride in my car. You know, and that turned into, oh, can I also get, you know, you guys have shiitake mushrooms and da da da. And she had never eaten at Pagu before. She was a friend of her friend. And it turned into this awesome relationship where now she actually uses the restaurant as a co-working space where she can get her postdoc work done. Um, and at the same time, we also work on fundraising and logistics for Project Restore Us, which, you know, was just a continued kind of conversation of, well, if I can't get groceries safely and I live in, you know, Cambridge or Medford or Somerville, um, and I would like to go to Pagu to do that. Well, how about all these, you know, food insecure families of essential workers who are being furloughed? How, how do they get groceries? And so we looked into how we could get them groceries. And we actually coordinated door-to-door -door volunteer delivery. Um, you know, had two restaurants, uh, Pagu and Mei Mei by Irene Lee. Uh, packaging and repackaging these groceries um, and delivering, let's see, over 100,000 pounds to over 600 families um, in the greater Boston area. That's pretty so. awesome. And you also helped launch, while this is all going on, off their plate with Ken Oranger. Yeah. Which was created to provide relief to COVID-impacted restaurant employees while also feeding families, basically. Yeah. So, you know, I got this email just before the government shut down. So this is actually before Project Restore Us. Um, back in March, I think it was March 15th or something, I got an email from one of my regulars, Natalie. And she said, hey, I have this idea. You know, I think uh, hospitals, healthcare workers are about to become very busy with this COVID situation. Um, what do you think about preparing meals for them? And that way we could continue to support restaurants, restaurant employees who are about to be very, um, very much affected by COVID as well. 
And so, um, you know, Natalie, Ken, and I got on the phone and we kind of hashed out what that might look like. And March 19th, just less than a week later, um, you know, we delivered the first 90 meals from Pagu to Brigham Woman. The reaction time is incredible. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, you know, restaurants work on pretty tight schedules. So for a restaurant to produce it, I was like, this is not impossible. We know how to make food, package food, and I guess we'll figure out how to drive it over, which I drove it over actually with Natalie in the rain that day. And I think it's important when you start something, um, you know, in, in both projects here, uh, and even just in the restaurant, when you do it from start to finish as the founder, you understand, you know, where the bottlenecks can be. Um, and, you know, our vision for the initiative was to operate it in other cities as well. Right. Natalie said, I have friends in San Francisco and New York who want to do this and be the Natalie's there. You know, do you have, do you guys have Tracy's and Ken's in these other cities that want to do this? You haven't had indoor dining since March. Nope. Yeah, obviously there's a reason why you don't have indoor dining now. Um, so I'm curious why that might be and what you're doing to make it viable for the winter for you. Yeah, um, you know, I've continued to be in touch with friends in science and medicine. And, you know, we've learned a lot about COVID, but by no means are any of us experts. Um, you know, I think even Dr. Fauci will say that himself. Um, but we do know that COVID can spread through aerosol transmission. And, you know, given the guidelines of the state, of the city, um, we don't believe that it is safe to be doing indoor dining. Um, we have been doing the research behind what it takes to make it safe, but I don't believe that there's, you know, 100% or even 90% guarantee or even 80% guarantee that it's safe. Um, you know, there are re restaurant operators currently doing indoor dining, and I'm sure there will continue to be. Um, and, you know, that's that's their decision. Um, but I live with, uh, you know, my parents who are in their 60s, my aunt who's in her 70s, um, my nine-month-old who's under one. Um, and I would consider, you know, those people to be quite healthy, but... I also consider them to be at risk if they are in contact with me. Um, so, so you're not planning on opening the dining room? No, I mean, I think, I think we will go ahead and um, do all the due diligence for it, but I haven't made the final decision to open or not, but it's, it's looking like not. Um, I wanna do the due diligence because uh, my friend Austin, who is um, you know, very well informed during these COVID times, uh, he's a psychologist by training, but anyway, um, Austin has, uh, he's gotten a church. He bought a church and this church is like high ceilings and he's gonna turn it into this nonprofit acrobatic center. And he has done all the testing for how to, you know, make a safe environment for this church uh, during COVID. And obviously he would have, you know, limited participants and, you know, pods of people. Um, and, he, you know, he's, he's done all the research into the HEPA filters, the UVCs. Uh, he's taken a fog machine and run it through the space to understand how the air flows. So I'd like to replicate that at Pagu, take a video of it, and you know, make a spreadsheet of all the equipment, um, which I've already done that part. But you know, the fog machine video I think is is important because when you Google restaurant COVID safety, like air filter, um, you know, those kinds of keywords, there's not very much information out there. Um, so I mean, I can at least like do the homework and, and put it out there. And hopefully that's a resource for people um, because you know a lot, of, a lot of these restaurants are just putting up partitions and like six feet distancing. 
But already we know from studies at MIT that six feet distancing is not enough. You sneeze and that sneeze travels 29 feet. Um, well, that would definitely... Yeah, that would get me over here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> careful. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think to, to that end, um, there's a lot of guesswork going in right now. Everyone's kind of flying blind. So you kind of have to do what you feel comfortable doing as a, as a restaurant owner. Um, both for your customers, your your staff, and you. Um, and so I think it's hard to kind of say there's a right way to do it when, you know, we really don't know the answers to that. So it's, I applaud you for, for going the extra step there, and I think everyone's uh, trying to make it work, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, you know, at the same time, you know, my employees, I went from 35 employees prior to COVID um, down to four, back up to 11. I think I'm now like back down to six or so. Um, and I'm trying to keep, you know, those six or as, as many as possible, um, which is largely dependent on business volume. Um, but the things, the safety measures that we have promised our employees have been that they would only need to have one job. So they make enough at Pagu alone to not need another job. Um, we carpool to work with the windows down, uh, no more than four people um, to a vehicle. Um, so no one's taking any public transportation. Um, any groceries, any pharmacy needs that they might have, um, we can handle at Pagu. And so, you know, those basic necessities and that, you know, guarantee of safety in addition to, you know, all PP supplied hand sanitizer, um, you know, these halo masks, which are 1% more effective than N95s, um, you know, I think that's, that's some of the best things that we can be doing right now. Um, and, and I think opening for indoor dining, you know, more than anything puts, puts them at risk. Um, and that doesn't seem fair. They're, they're taking care of their families here and their families back in Colombia, back in Salvador. In terms of the outdoor dining, you have a nice patio off to the side. Are you just gonna keep it open until people stop coming? And are you gonna do anything to try and keep people warm? Yeah, we're looking into heat lamps. I know the Central Square bid has been um, really, uh, you know, really great in terms of a resource. And Michael Monestim and Nina Berg there um, are just awesome in staying in touch with business owners and doing what they can to really make sure that um, we stick around. So they're looking into subsidizing heat lamps for Central Square. Um, we're talking with friends who currently are operating with heat lamps. You know, the difficulty is that these heat lamps range anywhere from $100 to $2,000 a heat lamp. If they're available. If they're available. Yeah. And, and you need a lot of them because your tables are so far apart. Correct. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I've been talking to guests on the patio, seeing if they would come, if there were heat lamps, if they would come, if there were indoor dining. Um, and, you know, they say that they're going to support us as long as possible, whether that's patio or takeout, um, that... They haven't been indoor dining in other places, but they said if I did it, that they would trust that I've taken additional measures, which I guess says a lot. But um, again, I think it's that weight on your shoulders and having, you know, there's having seen other places have to shut down for 24 hours, 48 hours because of a positive case. I mean, like that's like best case scenario, right? That you just shut down 24, 48 hours. But what if that employee or that patron, um, that guest, that regular or that first time diner, um, you know, is in the ICU for the next four to eight weeks, right? Like that's on, that's on my conscience, like that worst case scenario, um, you know, not the best case scenario. Pagu is located on Mass Ave in Cambridge. GoPagu.com is the website. On the site, you can reserve a patio table while available. You can order food or order from the market. And you can learn more about Project Restore Us and Off Their Plate on your website. And 
I know you're very busy and I wanted to thank you for coming and, and giving this a shot. This is an experiment for us and you're our first guest. So thank you very much. Great. Thanks for having Thanks me. Thanks for coming in. Yeah. This is great. I'm excited to eat the sandwich. <laughs> I know. It's like she's been staring at it yeah. the whole time. Yeah. We kept you from here. Yeah. Thanks so no, much. No, I'll be fine. It's just my breakfast, lunch, and dinner. We're here with Graffito's Jesse Barracon and Nolan DeCoster from Toast, which is a Boston-based software company that provides tools to restaurants to help them manage transactions in the restaurants, and now more than ever, online. Nolan, you, you've been Director of Business Development. How long have you been at Toast? Be about a year and I think a month, so it hasn't been that long, but I've been in... Um, but what a challenging first year to be there. It's been wild. I, um, so my, my background is I've been in restaurant technology for almost a decade, um, whether in reservation technology or food service, and joined Toast uh, on the business development side when the company was looking to expand its partner marketplace, so all the different partners that Toast works with uh, that integrate... And that's where it started. And then to your point, COVID happened and the scope of what you know I've been doing um, changed drastically. It led me to meeting uh, the team at Graffito, along with a lot of other really interesting partners that I hadn't thought I'd been working with before I started. Describe some of the different solutions that Toast offers. There's a lot. I mean, at the core, um, Toast is, is a, a point of sale provider. We're also a fintech business in the sense that we are uh, a merchant processor for restaurants as well. So point of sale, obviously, the, the, the central nervous system of a restaurant. Um, and then since we, we started, you know, the, the goal for Toast was really to help restaurants thrive. And one of the larger challenges in the industry when it comes to restaurant technology is, one, restaurants historically have been adverse to new technology. But two, um, it's been disparate systems. There's been all these different providers. You have your reservations on one platform. You have your accounting on one. You have your point of sale on another. And uh, there's a lot of demand from restaurants to have like a fully integrated s- system. And so we, we, we recently really developed in, into an online ordering platform. We built our own actually second standalone product, which is Toast Now, which is a, a, an online ordering system. And we, we spun that up during COVID uh, free of charge for restaurants to help them find ways. To was that money. already in the works or did that happen as a direct response? No, it was funny. We, we spun up Toast Now in a week. Actually, wow. um, we, when 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 COVID happened, we, we we launched two new things. One was Rally for Restaurants, which was a, a coalition of other restaurant tech players that were banding together to drive gift card sales. And, and I, I but, look forward to talking about that later. Sure, for sure, sure, sure. That's and then, an important one. And then uh, yeah, but Toast Now um, was just uh, something that we knew that needed to happen. There were so many restaurants that just didn't have a digital presence, and we knew that if they couldn't provide meals off premise, that there would have been a huge problem. So. Um, and it was very successful. We thousands of restaurants are using it. You've had to come up with innovative business streams. And one thing you've done recently is partner with local corporations, mostly in Cambridge on this catering program. And mm-hmm. I think that's how you met Jesse. Yeah, it's funny. It, it's hilarious. This is the first time I've actually met Jesse in person. I've been working with him. It's, it's a COVID relationship. It's a, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's funny when like you, you see the person for the first time, you're like, I already know you, but... What's your impression now that you've seen him in person? He looks the same as he does on Zoom. There's no, like, you know, I, I wasn't expecting, like, a giant or, you know, the camera. It was, he looks exactly... Voice sounds the same, you know, everything. I think when I was Go on figure. a... I, Nolan, when I was on a call with you, I think you were, like, in the backyard lounging in a chair. That's so my office, You yeah. do seem a little different to me, personally. <laughs> yeah, when I get on Zoom calls and it's raining out, people are like, wait, where are you? I'm like, I'm inside the house. No, I've been taking Zoom calls... Uh, from my uh, my fiance's parents' house in the Cape, and it's been, you know, remote work is pretty cool. <laughs> We've been talking about how restaurants, you know, are trying to extend their patio season. You almost need to extend your outdoor office season so that you don't. Yeah. Have to- well, that was funny you mentioned that. We're we're debating, uh, you know, because we're month to month. We're we're debating just moving somewhere warm to, until we figure out when there's going to be a vaccine and things will get better. I know some friends, they lived in Austin and they basically just picked up and moved. Their their daughter's still enrolled in the same school. They almost, I don't think they've told their jobs. They just left and they're still working at companies based in Austin. <laughs> Why not? I'm sure there's tax implications. Well, shout out to Will, who <laughs> yeah. we've been working with on uh, the Toast Drop program in Kendall Square, which is where you're going. But Will picked up and moved to Denver. Did you right? out him just now? Does the company know that Will's in Denver? I, I think so. Okay, yeah. right, we'll I mean, Will, Will's Will, also, Will was like the first one of the first employees at Toast, so I, he, he gets, has some leeway. He gets some slack. <laughs> Before you tell us about what you guys are working on, what was the problem that some of these businesses 
we're having with employees back in the office. Every single corporate cafeteria is closed right now. All those snack stations, they're all these health and safety issues. Why these corporations, they're typical MO related to coffee bars, related to break rooms, related to lunch programs. I mean, they've been scrapped. And I think the most exciting thing about kind of the introduction to Toast, which was probably in April, maybe May, was, you know, I think there was a real sense, God, we could use data in such an interesting way and technology in an interesting way. And we talked about urban design and the way cities are going to change and the way landlords are going to change. But then ultimately, I think both Graffito and Toast realized, oh man, how do we just help restaurants right now? And how do we bridge uh, particularly the divide between folks that really need food service, like corporations in a place like Kendall, and restaurants who desperately need revenue, like restaurants in a place like Kendall. So it's almost, I don't know if Nolan, if you would agree with this, I think we over we simplified what we were trying to do over a series of calls to say, hey, let's pilot something where we think we can have impact relatively quickly. Yeah, I would agree. Um, restaurants for years have been looking for new ways to monetize, right? It's a very, very challenging. The model was our every model was broken before it, this all happened, right? This just illuminated it. Restaurant cycling in and out, that's just not how the model works. And to Jesse's point, you have you know lots of subsidization happening in the corporate food space where companies are spending, you know, in San Francisco, I, I, I've seen budgets where it's twenty dollars per person per day for snacks and lunch, right? Sometimes breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And that money is going directly to, very large food institutions like the Compasses, the Aramarks, the Sodexos, right? And they provide a, you know, a value add in the sense that they have economies of scale, they can provide food at a lower cost. But who was suffering were the small businesses in those areas. Even like Facebook and uh, I think it was Menlo Park, there was um, an ordinance that was passed where they wanted to actually ban corporate cafeterias on behalf of small businesses going into COVID because these, these, they were just basically gobbling up all the dollars. And so this was this, this is like pre COVID. This is pre COVID, yeah. right? And so the point is that we, to myself, Toast, we looked at this as like, hey, this is a this, there's a disruption happening in this space, and there's an opportunity for us to help restaurants uh, in in communities that were depending on that foot traffic that's no longer there uh, to now have some sort of of uh, income, and that's basically coming from the the decrease in spend to the Airmarks and the Sedexos and so on. What I think is really interesting about this when we first had a conversation, Jesse, was that. These employers don't want their employees leaving. I mean, that's a big part of this. They're mm -hmm. actually saying, the second you come in here, we can't have you then dispersing for lunch and coming back into the office and putting people at risk. It's hard to believe that that, I mean, they're going home at night. It's hard to believe that that one lunch period could be such a risky thing. Yeah, I, you know, I, I was actually taken back by that as well when I heard that because it's not like the, the, the employer-employee relationship doesn't stop, you know, when... A person actually leaves like they're, they're working from home they're going around they're going to meetings right so why was it lunch you know I don't know I don't know if you have a, a, an opinion on why that might be Jesse well I think particularly at the beginning of the summer uh, and just recognize take a step back and you think about uh, ecosystem like Boston which is heavily skewed towards life science pharmaceutical um, there was a real desire from employers to both keep the workplace safe and keep the employees safe. And I think in addition, employees wanted to make sure, wanted to feel safe. And I think one of the ways employers did this, maybe it's parental, is they wanted to limit touch points that their employees had throughout the course of the day. So it's really just, if we can eliminate one opportunity for them to go out into the world during the day, better, great. Yeah, but then the problem is, okay, so we're going to shut our cafeteria, we're not going to have any of the amenities in-house, but we're going to say to our employees, you know, hey, we really prefer that you not leave your workstation during the day. Right. Well, what the heck do they do about lunch? Yep. Right. So you come up with the solution, you, you step into the middle of this process, and you're basically hooking them up with these restaurants who can then provide the food. Yeah, and it's the other big piece to this, too, is... Um, one piece was that the, the employers didn't want you leaving, but the other big piece is the employers didn't want non-employees coming into the building. So you, Again, you know, eliminating those touch points. Precisely. Yeah. But it's like, you know, you, you when you used to work at the toast office, I could order DoorDash. Like, I could order, I can't do that anymore. And somebody right? would just roll up to the door, maybe even make it to your desk. Correct. Yeah, exactly. And that obviously is an issue when you're on lockdown. So I think it was the, the marriage of those two concepts that led to the idea that, okay, like, just create like an, an aggregate order, which, by the way, is better for restaurants because they're not paying delivery fees. They're doing one large order. Um, they're not paying uh, any of like the transactional fees that the DoorDashes and the Uber Eats and Caviar's pay in the marketplace. And they can just have like a, a couple of restaurants that are local, hyper local, which I think has been a, a key to, to the, the pilot that we're doing right now. 
it's like a win-win for, for the community. So basically there is a shelving system in the lobby. Mm -hmm. If you buy a certain amount of time, put in your order, mm -hmm. do you go down and just pick it up? Depends on the building. Um, you know, we're, we're still pretty early on this and you know, everything's changing, right? Like every month there's some new thing that we realize, oh, we shouldn't be doing that. We should do, but right now the way that it's working, I think in, in some of the buildings we're working in is there's just one dedicated spot. And, uh, that's a great, like a great problem that we need to think through is like, what happens? How many people are allowed in an elevator, right? Like, like how does that impact productivity during the day? If everyone's just waiting in line to go, does it defeat the whole purpose? So we're figuring some of that stuff out. You mentioned it's a pilot, but it has launched. Yes. To some extent, how is it going? Can you gauge success yet? Great. Uh, from our perspective, we're finding to be highly successful in the sense that the adoption, right, um, has been high, right? Um, because you're not going, you don't have any other options. It's either that or you bring something from, from home, right? And it also creates problems for facilities, right, Jesse? Because then it's like, okay, well, now we need more refrigerators. We need more microwaves. Where are they going to eat this? Yeah, somebody brings in fish, you know, ruins the rest, you know. So, uh, that's game over. Right, so. Been there. Is there a ban on carrots in these meals? Because <laughs> if there is a raw carrot, then I'm out. Yeah, we're, well. You have an issue with raw carrots? I have an issue with, <laughs> I have an issue listening to people eat. <laughs> I, I, have a, I have a real problem with sound. I get that. And. You know, that's normal. Well, Definitely, Drew. What's, so, what's the policy here for that? <laughs> um, is that I, why the desks are so I have from? learned to live Drew's, with it Drew's by leaving. workstation is back there, Nolan. You, you, you eat in the phone booth? <laughs> Noise-canceling headphones have saved my life. Yep. And being able to leave the room has saved my marriage. You, you know, as long as we have multiple rooms, uh, it's not a problem. <laughs> I, I don't know how we got off. <laughs> All good. But um, I'm happy to keep going that direction if you like. Or we can go back to... No, let's not. Okay. Let's not. So it's working well restaurants have given you good feedback? We, we had some, um, you know, my, my partner Will has been working on this. You know, I was out last week when we launched it actually and we were getting emails from restaurateurs saying like, this is great. Like, and I think what's changed is the whole, this whole model, you know, the, what was challenging for restaurants to want to do like a drop off model before COVID is they already had a bunch of lunch demand. So to get a couple, if, if there is an adoption in a building, right, they get a couple orders, it's like great. It's good. It's, they're like, you know, this is okay. But when, the restaurants are down like every you know, you've seen the data like every order helps and when we can drive 10 20 meals you know on a monday wednesday friday to an office and that's on the low end right that's not even a, that's not even with buildings subsidizing the lunches like they used to right that's just people just pulling out their, their credit cards that makes a difference and um and and we've seen appreciation we've had emails from some of the restaurants being like this is great thank you yeah drew one of the things that is kind of i think a little shocking uh, certainly for me, I bet Nolan and Will would agree with this as well, is that we'll be on calls with these employers. And the KSA has been such a great partner on this. There are many of these calls. KSA, me. Kendall Square Association. Right. And, you know, uh, HR rep or someone in senior leadership who's looking over employee perks, et cetera, will say, oh, well, you know, we only probably will order like 20 lunches a day. And we have to keep reminding them. It shows how far we've come. Like 20 lunches on a weekday makes a difference for some of these restaurants. It gives you reason to employ people, to have them in the kitchen. Yeah, and things are just, you know, eight months ago, if you propose this to Nolan's point, like it wouldn't have flown. And I think part of that speaks to, and it's heartbreaking, restaurants need any help they can get these days. And I think that's the genesis of this, of this project in Kendall. And hopefully as this thing scales, you know, to Nolan's point, you know, I feel for some of the larger corporations that their business plans are crushed because they're in the corporate cafeteria model. But if we can divert some of that money, just a fraction of that money that was flowing towards other perks and not making it down to the local economy, the local restaurant yep. economy specifically, that's a win. And, and, you know, for me, when I look at how this whole thing's panned out in terms of government intervention, like they're just the way that the restaurant industry has been treated throughout this is, is, you know, it's a, it's a huge miss, right? And so that's why I, I don't feel too bad. Like the big businesses are the ones getting bailed out in this thing. And I feel like there's just, you know, I've been reading article after article. It feels like the government's just like, what's going to happen to these restaurants? Not our problem. And so we have to step up and try to come up with innovative ways to help. And it's also good revenue. I mean, there's good and bad revenue. Well, there's no bad revenue right now. But when I say good revenue, it's predictable. You know about it. You can plan for it. And I think in an environment right now where things are changing so rapidly, and you know, you take just bridging this with another conversation we were having here in the office, Nolan, there's some restaurants make or break now based on outdoor dining. And Friday night in September, it rains. 
that's game over. I mean, so things are so fluid. This is one way we can try to bake in some predictability, which I think is really important. I also love that it's hyper-local. No, no, no matter where the, the program exists, it seems like you take advantage of the restaurants in the area mm-hmm. so you can have these pockets of activity and every, it's fair game. And I think that's why it, the program just makes sense for all different sides of the marketplace is because you have landlords that have restaurant tenants and office tenants and they need, there's, that's an issue, right? So they're, there's, they're motivated for that. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it, there's, there's <laughs> we need to figure out ways to drive revenue fast to restaurants. And to Jesse's point, it's only going to get colder and less predictable as time goes on. And 25% occupancy, you know, when you already have a bunch of skeptical people about being indoors with other people, like that's, that's going to be really difficult for restaurants come, come Q4 and Q1. You know what else I love about this, Drew? Uh, and this is a little teaser for all you landlords listening. You know, we were on a call, it was earlier this week, um, Will Nolan and I, with one particular landowner who owns millions of square feet of office and lab. And, you know, as part of their development activities, they also own a bunch of retail real estate, right? It's not their core business, but they own it. The city's required them to do it. It's the right way to create place, et cetera. We're able to customize a program whereby they can set up a toast drop to support their own retail tenants as a way of connecting their office and lab tenants right back to their own retail tenants, which is a win-win. And I think that's the beauty of this thing is that it's existing technology, but it's highly flexible. Uh, and to your point, you know, it is, it is, it does feel really powerful that we can use this in a way to kind of support in a, in a hyper-local way, the, the restaurant community. It, it's really smart. Obviously, Toast is right in the middle of these transactions, so it, it makes sense for everybody. And because Toast is in the middle of all of this, um, you have a tremendous amount of data. Are you seeing regional spikes of restaurants closing based on outbreaks? Can you tell how they're dealing with the need to open and close repeatedly? Mm, yeah, it's, uh, it's funny because I think so we, we launched, uh, I think I said earlier, we launched a, a site called Rally for Restaurants. Um, and while the, the main focus was, you know, driving gift card sales to support any restaurant, it wasn't just toast restaurants, any restaurant. I mean, we were importing lists from, you know, Open Table, all the other different players that had restaurants just so we could try to market the, the fact that, you know, they, they need the revenue. But the other big thing that we did is we, um, if you go to the site, you, you, we basically made all of our sales data available, publicly available. I, mean, I remember the first time I showed it to Jesse, he was like, wait, what is this? And it's like, this is literally like state by state. Like, I was mad at Nolan. He took him like, we've been talking for months. <laughs> and it's the first time you showed it to me. I was like, yo. I there, mean- was a, there was a lot going on back then, you know. Um, but no, yeah. And it's, you know, I think um, the restaurant, so it depends on a couple things. It depends on geography. It depends on um the, the segment of the restaurant, it depends on restaurants that didn't, the restaurants that are closing, we're finding are the ones that did not pivot to, they didn't, they didn't want to face the reality that like there's a new normal and they need to adopt new technologies to be able to provide food off premise. Um, and then the, the, other, the other main factor is there's a lot of parts of the country that just didn't think that coronavirus was a big deal. And as soon as they could you know, as soon as the, the government would let them reopen, they were, you know, going out. And there's still places, I think, in the country where they're not taking it super seriously. And that's why the data is kind of skewed when you look across the U.S. It's, it, it varies. You launched Rally for Restaurants back in March, almost immediately after restaurants were yep. mandated to close. We did it one week. We launched Toast Now and Rally for Restaurants literally within a week, which was a massive undertaking and like a coordinated effort by all the employees at Toast. And it was pretty, it, what, what was great about it was, you know, the shock of this when it all happens to a company like Toast or if you're any restaurant technology company, you're like, "Uh oh, my business plans, like, what do we do? And why I'm proud to work at Toast is I was really blown away with by the response was like immediately, like almost philanthropic. It was like, look, just give this product away for free. Like, we'll put a bunch of money up. Like, how do we just help keep these restaurants afloat the best we can? And, and I think we, we did the best we could. Well, Nolan, I want to thank you for coming in today and talking to us about this new program. My pleasure. Thanks for all the work you're doing. Yeah, appreciate it. And and thanks to Graffito. I mean, you guys have been incredible at helping myself, Toast, really think through, you know, a, a whole other part of the, the landscape that we just hadn't really thought about, which is the relationship between landlords and, and restaurants. And I think uh, if we keep, keep at it, we can actually make some big things happen. So thank you guys for having me. Appreciate it. I'm sending this to my mom. 
Yeah, you should. Because he's always like, you didn't go to Harvard. I'm like, yeah, well, mom, I'm a, I was on a podcast for Graffito. Like, where, where's your podcast kind of thing? So shout out to my mom. <laughs> Thistle and Leak is Newton's latest restaurant to open. Kate and Trevor Smith are here to tell us about their new venture and what it's like to open a restaurant, really at a time when a lot of other restaurants are trying not to close. And and that sounds like a, um, a crazy thing to say, but that's the reality right now. So on that grim note, <laughs> I want to welcome Kate and Trevor to the Graffito podcast and to the Graffito office. Thank you. We're Thank glad you to be so here. much. Yeah, this is this is a beautiful space, and we're happy to be here today. Let's get into your restaurant, what it's about. I wanted to know why Newton. Uh, Newton just fell in our laps. Um, we initially had been looking in like Cambridge or Somerville, and uh, we found this space on a real estate listing, and drove past it a handful of times, and um, just kind of fell in love with the charm of the space first, and then looked at all the transportation opportunities there with parking lots and the tea, and then um, eventually fell in love with the neighborhood as well. Um, definitely couldn't, couldn't be happier to be in a space. And what, what was it before you guys were there? It was a restaurant called Comodore. Mm. That was a Chilean-American restaurant. And that, were they there for a while? or They were there for about five years. And did you work with them when you bought the space? Were they curious who was going to come in? Was there any thought in terms of the neighborhood and, and how people would feel to a new Very much. I mean, they put a lot of time and love and energy into building up their space, both physically with a build, but then also building up their following and their reputation. Um, I think they were really pleased to sell to another like chef owner couple and they didn't want it to go to some chain restaurant or anything like that. They wanted someone else who would love that space as much as they did. Curious how you came up with the name Thistle and Leak and what what was that process like? I've been keeping... Um, names of potential restaurants on a list and a file for over a decade. Um, and is that something like chefs just do? Yeah, it's just you know fantasy. Like I feel like it's when expectant parents start keeping lists of baby names. It's exactly the same. And clearly, I've been fantasizing about opening a restaurant for decades at this point. And um, Kate has a lot of Scottish heritage and I have a lot of Welsh heritage. And so the thistle being the national flower of Scotland and the leek being, well, it's this, it's the symbol of St. David, who is the patron saint of Wales. So it all kind of tied back when we decided really we wanted a pub format that the name came very quickly thereafter. Yeah, do you have your own list, Kate, or do you share a, a similar list? I had I, I had a short list. I think I was more the, the veto power here where... <laughs> He would give me names. I'd say, no, 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 no. <laughs> the, the space is beautiful. I do want to talk about the space. I have been there uh, a few times and um, it sits on a corner. And when you walk in directly to, to the left, there's a small open kitchen that sits in the corner and you can see all the action inside of the kitchen from the windows that wrap the space. And if you keep moving down the space to the left, there's a beautiful bar. And then... Uh, where my friend Pat is making drinks. We love Pat. Shout out to Pat. Uh, And then along the right side of the space are banquettes, tables, and chairs, um, which sit under a green, kind of a sage color paint. Um, And there's framed illustrations of fruits and vegetables. How am I doing on the space? I mean, that's... You're you're, you're describing it pretty well. I hope our listeners are, are taking it in. How many seats will there be, ideally, in the space? There will be 51 seats once we're... Uh, once we have our full uh, capacity back. Uh, And that includes eight seats at the bar and eight seats along the counter. There's a a kitchen counter that you can sit and watch watch the kitchen. What was your inspiration when you designed the restaurant? Uh, I mean, we we started with this amazing uh, framework, uh, just really beautiful set of bones to work with. Um, Five years in, it was still a very clean restaurant. Um, and obviously, like, like I said, they put a lot of heart and soul into it. Uh, our real inspiration was to, to take it from a very bright and modern sunny space and turn it into a, a darker, cozier uh, hub space. Um, definitely, that was, that was the theme and in, in trying to, between the art, between the colors that we've chose, 
um, both the green on the wall and then that dark espresso brown stain that's on all the wood. It was to to create a cozy pub vibe. Well, you, you, I hear this word pub a lot when you guys talk about the restaurant and specifically you've called it a, a London gastropub. What do you mean by that? I spent uh, a year and a half cooking in England um, early in my career and extremely pivotal point culinarily, um, but also um, just embracing the English culture was um, kind of a huge part of the experience there for me. And going to pubs on your day off, um, rolling in for breakfast and having you know a pint of beer as well as a big mug of tea and a big full English breakfast was just like probably you know seminal is one of my top five meals of my life and I did it like once a week um the pub is just a, a welcoming space it, it feels warm and, and loving and a place you want to go to multiple times a week that that community center in a way mm -hmm. like PTA meetings were held there as well as you know uh, after soccer matches, people would go and drink. And I mean, it, it wasn't about getting drunk. It was about just having a, a heart of the community to, to go to. Mm -hmm. um, and literally every two or three blocks, there was a different local pub. So, I mean, that's sort of one part of the aspect. The other part of the aspect is in, in London itself and in, in London proper. Um, the idea of gastropub is not what Americans think of gastropub. It's, um, it's inspired creative, local-driven food that um, speaks to the season and speaks to the community. Wow. And that's, um, a lot of those are being run by, by men and women who have high-end Michelin star experience and are just trying to provide a beautiful service for their community, you know, minus the white tablecloths, minus the, uh, you know, extraordinary wine lists, and it's just a little bit more humble. And that's kind of, you know, Kate and I both have plenty of Michelin star experience, but this is we wanted to take all that technique and present it humbly in a, in a comfortable environment. Now let, let's go back in time a bit. It's not a coincidence that your last names are the same and that <laughs> you guys have this rich history together. You met while you were working at Craigie Street? Yeah. Tell, there, me, tell me your how you met story. So it was actually at the Craigie Street Bistro um, and it was my first full-time cooking job. I went straight into, I heard it was the hardest kitchen in the city, so I... I decided I wanted to take my chances there. And um, what what makes a kitchen the hardest kitchen? It was just well, a it was just busy. You know, the minute you could finish your prep list, he would add three more dishes to your to your station. He being Tony to Maz. Tony Maz, yeah. yeah. He he was always pushing us, um, which is why we are where we are today. Um, and then it was just the standards are so high. The the precision, like nothing, nothing went out that wasn't perfect. Mm. So it was hard. It was not an easy kitchen to work in, but I also learned so much there. Great. And, um, and Trevor was already there? Or? Trevor was already there. And actually on my stage. So when you apply for a job, you stage, which, you know, you work in the kitchen and they just throw you in and see how you do before you're hired. And they, uh, they stuck me with Trevor. <laughs> um, so it's, and it, it can be sometimes a challenge to manage a stage because you have to as a cook, because you have to keep an eye on them, make sure they're doing okay. And uh, Tre Trevor told me years later that, you know, I thought he was flirting. Turns out he just knew that the restaurant was desperate for cooks and <laughs> was trying to, to make me like the place. So, but it worked and, and here we are, however many years later. And in, in addition to working for Tony Ma's, uh, Kate, you also worked at South End Formaggio Kitchen and you worked with Ken Oranger and Jamie, Jamie Bissonette. That's correct. Yeah. yeah. At, at Toro? Yes. And then Trevor, you also worked for Ken and Jamie, but at Copa. I, well, I was hired originally to be the opening chef de cuisine at Little Donkey. And um, a short time into my tenure there, I was needed at Copa. And um, I gladly took that spot. I I'd, I'd worked there briefly before Little Donkey opened and was just absolutely in love with the space. I'd never really cooked Italian food in earnest before that. Um, but, um, the size and scope of the restaurant and, and the clientele and everything was just so incredibly charming. And it was fun to cook Italian food in the end, which was, um, I kind of always knew it would be, but it like, I'd always cooked in very kind of French restaurants before that. So, um, dipping my toe into Italian food was this brand new love of this Pandora's box of, of, you know, rustic, beautiful food. What have you learned from them about owning and, and operating a restaurant? 
so many things. I feel like every day we look at each other and, and sort of are so grateful for all the experiences we've had because there's so much. Um, one is just how to maintain high standards doing volume. You know, Toro is a very busy restaurant. There are so many people in and out every day. And, and just there are so many little things that you can do to make sure that the, the food, the service, everything is consistently high quality, even at that volume. And that was invaluable. And just, just managing a busy restaurant like that, how to coordinate the schedules, how to keep food costs reasonable. Um, and Jamie and Ken were both just so helpful and so they definitely taught us more than we could ever ask in that. One of the key things I think I learned in my time with Ken and Jamie was um, how to motivate a staff, um, how to find that one thing in each person that they that they desire that they that they lack, and how to give it to them. And it's different with every person. It's different um, to get through to each person. I feel like they taught us almost more intangibles about running a business that are applicable across the spectrum rather than cookery things. Right. Yes, they taught us plenty of cookery right, things. Right. We had amazing experiences, whether in tasting food and, and being able to tweak our food on, you know, on a very high level. Um, their palates are extraordinary, and, and it was almost always so much fun to taste food with them. But the intangibles about management and you know when to spend money and when to hold on to it, um, kind of almost those things about running a business were more important than, than the cookery aspects. And Trevor, we actually met at Alcove, and you were working as a server, and from what I hear, you did this to gain front-of-house experience to get you ready for Thistle and Leak. Is that, is that true? Or? Yeah, absolutely. Um, when I left Ken and Jamie and Copa, um, we were a few months away from expecting our daughter, and I just needed a break from the, from the 70, 80-hour work weeks um, to kind of get ready for the arrival of Eleanor. And Tom Schlesinger Guidelli, who's a, a good friend of ours from the Craigie days, um, offered me a serving job, and it seemed like the perfect opportunity to kind of fill in, fill in any 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 gaps in my in my tool bag, um, as far as understanding the front of the house, understanding um, what I wanted out of a general manager. We were going to have to hire a general manager, and I wanted to understand what that role was, and and I wanted to understand service. I wanted to be able to write a service manual for our for our servers, and and really understand the nuance of why they were doing things and, and what function that served, whether that really heightened the experience or whether it was extraneous or just, you know, I didn't, I didn't want anyone else to make these decisions for us. I wanted us to have firsthand knowledge of, of how we were doing things. And before you opened uh, the restaurant, you hosted several pop-ups, I've heard. And so, Kate, how critical is it that, that these events go well? And how do they get you ready for opening the restaurant? Is it fun? Are you seeking feedback or is this just validation? It's, it's mostly fun. Um, it's, I think it's really important and sort of, we were hoping it would start to sort of build a following. People that have known us over the years in, in various venues can, can get to know what our food is like outside of the other influences with just us cooking. Um, and actually, our, our first pop-up sold out very quickly with, with mostly close friends. So it was sort of a, a biased crowd. Um, and, and, and unfortunately, we had a couple more that we had planned that were sort of immediately shut down once COVID hit. Um, so we actually only really ended up doing one. And, and mostly, it was just a lot of fun. We do have to talk about your opening, your decision to open a restaurant during the pandemic. It seems like ultimately you figured... This is a dream of yours. You found an ideal space. You've been preparing it for so long and you just, you weren't going to let this get in your way. Yeah. I mean, the point that we were in the process when this all hit, we were, you know, a week or two, we, we were very close to closing the deal. Um, we could have walked away. We would have lost, I mean, we would have lost a little bit, but ultimately we were like, if we don't do it now, who knows when we're going to get another chance. And, and we sort of talked to everybody involved and ultimately decided that the best thing to do was to move forward um, and just make the best of it. And, and so far, we've, we've been very happy that we did that. Knowing that you're probably going to need a takeout menu, does that change the way you approach the menu when you open the restaurant? Absolutely. Um, and do you feel like you've compromised? 
Absolutely not. Um, we have, we just shifted our paradigm. Um, this restaurant looks ever so slightly different than it would have had COVID never ha happened. But quite honestly, um, I feel like our dishes are about, you know, flavor and composition. They're not about um, I don't know, theatrics and kind of uh, extraneous things. You know, our intention never was to open a Michelin star tasting menu restaurant. So um, having to pivot away from that, as so many New York City restaurants did, and turn to takeout, like that was never part of the plan. We always wanted dishes that were, um, I think when we were designing the to-go, you know, the menu in general and thinking about to-go, we, we thought our, our number one tagline that we kept looking at each other going, yeah, but how will this taste 45 minutes later sitting in someone's living room on their coffee table? Right. So creating things that already kind of tasted good and traveled well was definitely um, our focus. You know, Kate, um, her experience at Formaggio, they did quite a bit of takeout food and uh, pr prepared items. So she definitely had that experience. And my experience at Copa, we did an incredible amount of to-go food um, between pizza and pastas and salads and things and um, figuring out why those things traveled well and, and what made them good takeout food um, definitely played a big part in how we designed our, our menu. How do you envision service going this winter with respect to outdoor dining? I mean, we're gonna be talking about that a lot during this podcast, during this episode. We talk about it a lot during our team calls. What are you doing to prepare for winter? I mean, for one, we've had more conversations about space heaters in the past two weeks than I think I've had in my life. And, you know, just figuring out how to keep the outdoor space comfortable as long as possible. We're also, you know, we, we want to open for lunch. We want to do sort of special events on Monday nights when we're closed. And so... The conversation becomes, okay, as long as we have patio, we'll run with that. But once we don't have a large patio anymore, that seems like a, a kind of perfect time to launch lunch, to launch some of these other things that will make up for what we lose in patio seating. Trying to look creatively at, you know, expanding the streams of revenue um, as far as like, you know, having house-made frozen lasagnas to sell, um, you know, just having those pantry items, whether it's, you know, our clam dip, which has become an, uh, an instant popular hit. Um, thinking these, having these things, maybe it's slices of pate, having these things available to sell um, above and beyond takeout, I think is kind of, um, you know, it, it's things we can do, things we can do well. And if we can sell them <laughs> and make some money on them, then all, all the better. Watching those sales numbers are ever important, obviously. Yeah, and, and usually making money is the key to survival. I feel like during COVID, saving money is equally as important. For Thistle and Leak, what's the key to making it to the spring? Well, I think, like I said, just we're already looking at how we can survive once the patio goes away. Because with the patio, we're doing okay. Um, but we're, we're, we've we've already had several meetings and, and just lots of brainstorms, like Trevor mentioned of different ways we can bring people in and you know if it's a six-person cooking class on a Monday night like that's that's something um, and and we've also been you know working with our landlord working with some some other people to try to to find a way to ease some of the expenses also for most restaurants they've had to make changes and they know what to expect when things normalize again whenever that may be um, when this is over, what changes are you most looking forward to implementing that sort of are mostly in line with your original vision? I just want to see a full dining room. Just packed like, people, just packed just Friday, people. Saturday nights. I, I, I know that's a terrifying thought right now in the midst of COVID, uh, all those people shoulder to shoulder, but that was always the vision. The vibe and buzz and the hum in the room at Copa and Toro was intoxicating. It was part of being there. And, and, and certainly that was that was the point, you know, the bank ads pushed close together and, and just, you know, people at the bar and, um, you know, people too deep at the bar waiting for their table, just that energy of, of, of the restaurant in full swing. I mean, that's, one of the best parts about a restaurant. That's one of the things I've fallen in love with about, about working at restaurants in general is just, you know, having that energy. Well, I hope it happens sooner than later. I mean, it will eventually. Um, I want everybody to visit thistleandleak.com for more information about the restaurant. 
I will warn you though, if you go to the website and you look at the menu, I think you will find yourself doing um, takeout or scheduling a reservation. So only look if you're ready to eat. Uh, Jesse did takeout the other night. He said it was delicious. I sat outside with my wife during one of your first openings, first open nights, and I totally agree and I can't wait to come back. You're open every day except Monday, which is why I want to thank you for being here today. Yeah. Because I know it's your day off. It's, it's, it's packed full. As much as it's a day off, there's no rest for the wicked. Thanks for listening to the Graffito Podcast. For more information about the podcast, our hosts, and guests, please visit graffito.com and click the podcast tab at the top of the page. Do you have a question for our team? Email podcast at graffito.com and maybe we'll answer on one of our future episodes. 